The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to Accounting Matters. I'm your host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. On today's episode, we're picking up the second of our three-part mini-series focusing on the deals transaction lifecycle. I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast studio one of our, I'd say frequent, yes, uh, podcast guests here, Chase Anderson, who helps lead our capital markets practice here at Embark. Chase, welcome back. It's been a little bit, but happy to see you yeah. in here. Adam, thanks for the invite back. Always glad to be in this room and talking yeah. with you. Yeah, of course. So happy to you know have this conversation with you today, Chase, to talk about all things related to companies as they acquire new businesses, look to streamline these new businesses that they acquire and ultimately grow them as part of that kind of middle phase of the transaction life cycle. So with all that in mind, Chase, you know, I want to maybe help set the stage a little bit. So in my first episode, I had a conversation with Drew Solomon from a transaction services perspective, kind of talking about all the things that go into you know, the, the M&A strategy of a company, you know, thinking about identifying who's the right target for them, performing the due diligence that needs to take place to make, ultimately make that decision on whether or not they want to buy or not buy a business. So with that context in mind, where we've kind of left our listeners off at, can you talk to me about what happens next? So like once the due diligence dust, we'll say, has settled, um, the buyer, seller, they're both kind of you know, aligned and ready to move forward with the deal, what happens next? Yeah, great, great questions and happy to be here and glad you're able to talk to our, our friend, Drew Solomon. Probably talked a little bit about Dave Matthews Band too. <laughs> a little joke, a little inside joke here at Embark. <laughs> Did not get into any of that specifically. He was very, very, uh, had a lot to say about the deal it's, um, itself, but definitely didn't get into his music <laughs> next time. Yep. Well, I like to think about it in in two different ways. I'll try to cover both while we're here. And so you have a platform acquisition, which generally is a private equity group is going out and they're buying a brand new company, changing control, and they're taking it over. And then you also have what we'll refer to as tuck-in acquisitions, a company's established and just going out and doing their own acquisitions and kind of adding to the pie. So I'm gonna try to talk about both in the context of this conversation. And so please chime in if I'm getting one sure. to, to one or the other. No, um, happy to hear both. Yeah. but. Due diligence has occurred. You you get this beautiful PowerPoint or PDF deck that's 80 pages of numbers and text, and now you need to go do something with it. And so they're going to move forward with the transaction. And so what happens next is is generally uh, I like to phase it into four kind of buckets. You are going to now negotiate. Okay. You're going to approve. You're going to finance, and then you're going to close. Okay. And so within that, we'll kind of cover a few of the of the sections of that. So um, some common terms we're going to hear are definitive agreement, and that's uh, the negotiation phase. You're going to put pen to paper. Lawyers are going to get involved, and you're going to start taking um, you know a few page, let's call it letter of intent, that lays out the general terms into a full on legal agreement. And so you have a lot of back and forth on that. So you're going to have a definitive agreement, and the negotiations are going to occur, and then you're going to finalize it, um, and and probably sign it with, and execute it. So once that then happens, then it goes to the approval process. And there's a few parties at play. There's obviously the government, we're in the, in the US of A, and so you're gonna have regulatory approval and antitrust approvals that need to occur. Um, 
you know, looking for things like monopolistic behaviors, um, certain deals uh, recently have been denied because they're going to be too large um, in, in terms of competition. Um, after that, or at the same time as that, you're going to have shareholder approval if if that's required. Um, right. Board approval, maybe shareholder approval, approval um, to say, yeah, we're going to move forward with this deal. The terms are okay, and let's proceed. Uh, once you get the deal signed, the approval is in place. Oftentimes, you need to go finance, get backup financing for the deal. So a lot of the M&A that we see today uh, requires debt to finance the deal. You sure. Know, um, leverage buyout LBOs are still a thing. Large amounts of debts are used to, to acquire businesses. Um, a few of the final things that are going to be a clearance of contingency. So before the closing, both parties must fulfill any contingencies or conditions specified in the agreements. And those are usually very long and legalized written sections. Um, and this may include third-party consents, uh, legal matters, or meeting certain performance targets. Yeah, clearly legal counsel advisors are a huge component of right any deal um, closing and, and kind of moving forward with that. So, so no surprise there. I will just add, you know, we talked a bit about, um, you know, certain public companies that may be making strategic acquisitions or whatever, that there are specific rules to SEC registrants just to kind of keep in mind. So rule 305 um, provides additional reporting obligations that companies do need to need to think through, um, as well as filing, you know, form 8K um, requirements associated with certain acquisitions. So just a shameless plug, we did do a podcast recently on that, uh, talking with Jana Gregory. Um, so definitely check that out for more information on that. Uh, so once the transaction, so we've closed, the transaction itself is sealed, signed, delivered, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, there's a number of accounting and reporting considerations that now take place um, for the acquirer. So we've talked about probably a lot of these that we'll get into, I'm sure, today on past podcasts. So definitely encourage people to, to check out some of those past podcasts for maybe a deeper dive. But can you kind of just talk through just kind of high level? What are some of the more key accounting type reporting considerations that now the acquirer has to think through now that they've closed and acquired this business. Yeah, absolutely. This is where I'd say I spend most of my time. So okay. I'll try to keep this as brief, knowing that we got some more topics to cover. Um, but the the first thing that comes to mind, it's just simply closing the books. You know, sounds simple. Sounds simple, <laughs> but it can be oftentimes very complicated in the sense that you want to plan very strategically ahead, knowing when are we closing this transaction and why. And if we're going to close it on a non-month end, um, do, are we doing this the right way from a timing perspective and a, and a resource perspective? And right. so, Deals don't always wait for what's convenient for accounting, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I like to think if in a perfect world, you would close a deal on the first day of the month, you know, 12.01 a.m. on the first of the month. Because that way you have your books closed, doing a, a typical month-end close, and everyone just has to do it once, and it's pretty clean and simple. Um, but oftentimes that's not the case, and so you might do a mid-month uh, transaction that people don't plan for that. And so the accounting department closes a normal cycle, and then never closed the mid-month cycle, and so now you got to go back and do a reclose on a period that's either passed or being jumbled up with with current close and the current requirements that just um, you know, a snowball becomes just a massive, massive effort. It's a snowball effect to try to fix. And so I've seen just a lot of effort taken to, to close the books appropriately. If yeah. It's not planned. And when people acquire businesses, like 
more or less, they always have the same accounting policies as the acquirer, correct? So there's really no need to figure out any accounting difference. <laughs> I'm joking there. That was um, a joke. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I know. You know, I'm sure you you can speak to this a bit, but just the differences in accounting bases, or you know, if someone's even on a cruel or U.S. GAAP based accounting. Oh yeah. Know, like just having to kind of sort through some of those. What are some things that tend to come up in that space? Yeah, everybody likes to think that how they were doing it was good enough and it was and it's going to be good enough. And sure. you know, oftentimes that's not the case with the new buyer. The new buyer is going to be bigger and more sophisticated and have different reporting requirements and expectations. And so, you know, what might have worked for a small mom and pop using QuickBooks to kind of just get by, it's not going to work for a bigger company that's on let's say Oracle or NetSuite and you're going to have to go through um, really account by account and make sure that it makes sense. The data is supportable, it can support audit, policies are consistent, expectations are consistent uh, for the go forward of the business. And so, you know, a lot of times we see cash basis businesses that are acquired by gap filers. We've seen oftentimes a lot of kind of hybrid gap is what I'll say. It's, yep. you know, good enough gap that supported, um, you know, a lot smaller firm audits. Um, but once they go to a bigger firm audit, you know, it needs to be full on gap. And so we see a lot of work and cleanup that has to get done to support kind of these new requirements of, of the bigger of the bigger buyer. Yeah. yeah and we've, we've actually done another podcast, surprisingly, <laughs> uh, talking about cash to accrual. So definitely check that out as well. Uh, so I know I'll, I will say I'll just interrupt you as an ex auditor for any company that has significant inventory. Yes. Just plan your inventory counts oh, for sure. well in advance yes. because that is something that always will have to get audited, yes. generally speaking. And, and and clearly, like a lot of these things, these differences that we're talking about are already right. They're identified through the diligence process. So companies know as they're moving forward with this deal, if it's, you know, it's not a condition of the close itself as having these things already taken care of. It's going to be something they're going to be tackling once the deal is closed. Mm -hmm. So it's on their radar to start moving forward with. But no, nevertheless, it's a lot of work, right? Yeah. I interrupted you. You're talking. About no. Podcast. <laughs> no, all good. So I know some of the major accounting standards, right? They can introduce complexities um, in a transaction post-close. So revenue recognition, leases, you know, and now Cecil. Um, are kind of the big three that tend to come up more often than not. Can you talk to me a bit about what you see as what, you know, when people acquire a business about needing to either kind of, I want to say relook or reassess kind of the accounting conclusions or whether or not they truly applied some of these major accounting standards is what do you see like having to sort through kind of in that, in that space? Yeah. Uh, I'll start with materiality. Always kind of go in there and say reassess materiality sure. and kind of get to the level you expect. If you're going to be bought by a public company, materiality might be significantly lower or higher just based on the size of the business you are running. Um, so start there and kind of get a sense of the population. But from an acquisition standpoint, the historical business, and we've had conversations about this, is essentially a new entity. It's a new reporting entity or could be a part of a new reporting entity. And so taking the time to have the fresh perspective of kind of reassessing from scratch uh, what's been done. And so you covered a few revenue leases and CESOL, but I like to cover oftentimes functional currency. Mm -hmm. You know, I see a lot of these businesses that get purchased with uh, you know, multinational footprints that 
we'll ask questions about what was the functional currency, how is it done, and what's the expectation going forward. And and, and surprisingly, a lot of times there's no documentation. It was just like, oh, this company in in France is in France, so we're going to use the euro. Well, let's let's reassess it in the broader scheme of things because it has a massive ramification when it comes to global consolidation and ultimately push down accounting if that's um, what's required. Um, that and variable interest entity analysis, VIE, you know, just really taking a step back and, and looking at all of the relationships at play and saying, okay, do, do we feel comfortable with this going through audit that we've, that we can anticipate questions that we're going to be asked. So, yeah. yeah, some tricky areas of gap for sure that I'm sure bring up a lot of questions and, and the need to reevaluate and just think through a little bit more critically. So another kind of key aspect of deals is, you know, you see it in, in, almost all agreements really is around kind of networking capital provisions and networking capital adjustments and things like that. Can you tell me a bit about what the buyer needs to do? So the networking capital adjustment, right? It's usually a provision that comes, gets triggered or comes into play, you know, post-close, right? There's a Mm -hmm. certain time period. But for those that maybe aren't as familiar with what that means, can you tell me how that mechanism really works and kind of like what companies go through to kind of mm-hmm. evaluate that adjustment. Yeah, this is this is pretty important, especially because it's this is real dollars at play after the close that have to get sent back and forth between the buyer and the seller within predefined days. And so there's there's usually you know the high of the deal closed immediately followed by now we got to get the filing requirements of these agreements taken care of or addressed. And so the networking capital is one where within the deal phase um, and in the agreements, there's targets generally at, at an estimates of, you know, the buyers buying this business, they expect a networking capital amount of, of X based on what they're going to pay for the business of Y. Um, and it's, and at, at close, it's going to be an estimate. And generally, it's sure. based on historicals. Um, and at the time of close, that month end close hasn't happened. So it's an estimate. And so within this networking capital um, true up period, you got to finalize it and you got to finalize it with the most accurate data as possible. And so uh, within generally 60, 90 days, you have to deliver a f- an actual networking capital number based on the close. And that drives either the buyer having to pay more money to the seller or the seller having to, you know, give money back to the buyer. And, you know, this can go to the magnitudes of millions of dollars if, if it's wrong. And I've seen it where it's it's been significantly off and there's a lot of questions asked as to how could something have been off by this amount of money because, you know, the funds the, the funds set up to buy these businesses are, are very strategically. Um, right, they have a presumption of kind of like yeah. what, what level of working capital is necessary exactly. to run the business based on that target. Yep. And if it's way off from that, it's like, are we buying something that's way more capital intensive than yeah, we expected. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then this kind of starts then the legal, I would say, back and forth of the agreement with the buyer and seller where you hope not to start a contentious relationship right out of the gate with disagreements on networking capital numbers. Sure. Because then it could just lead to more and more. Um it could be a tough relationship. So this is very a very key um, you know, first out of the gate aspect of, of MA. Yeah. So Earlier, you kind of touched on a few kind of technical areas that, you know, you may have to navigate with the acquired business. Um, But even from the acquirer side, there's probably some technical accounting kind of, or maybe even operational matters that come into play post-close. So, you know, ASC 805, when you're thinking about kind of, you know, 
business combination guidance and acquisition accounting that you have to apply. You know, what are some other technical accounting mm-hmm. type items that are kind of on the checklist for companies that they have to think through or that you help companies? Yeah. You know, as part of being an advisor, yeah, in the two, space. and you said it, you said it well. The two ways I think about it is you have the technical accounting, and then you have the operational. And so, from an from a technical accounting, we'll start with the funds flows, the common term of this large workbook or book that kind of lays out where all of the money's going, sources and uses. So, where's mm-hmm. the money coming from, and where's it going? And it, you know, generally, it should reconcile to match each other. And so, within that that amount that that book, there could be numerous units of account and so you could have just the simple purchase accounting but you could also have other things like uh, rollover equity that could be a part of the agreement you could have compensation um, share-based compensation awards bonuses that cover multiple periods um, new employment agreements that could be struck at odd hours of the of the deal phase (laughs) where you know you've got ramifications both on the on the predecessor business and then on the successor business um, from an accounting standpoint that you have to look at, you got escrow agreements that you got to analyze, indemnities, um, transaction expenses. And then a lot of times you got other areas like debt. You know, debt was used, so you got to account for the debt. Um, you've got areas like private company accounting elections, if you so choose to use those. Um, we talked about variable interest entities, um, foreign currency. And then for me, kind of the culmination of a lot of this is this global consolidations, which can get, you know, pretty pretty hairy um yep. through it all yeah there's a lot of areas a lot of areas <laughs> yep so there's a lot at play of just a simple purchase accounting or, or people think so then the second thing that put that aside as the technical thing about the operational now you actually have to go like do it put it into a system and so you got to think about the legal entity structure your ledger structure sub ledger setup structure i get back to foreign currency because that's where i i think i've seen historically the most amount of pain with you know um operational pushdown, but also just, you know, required pushdown. Um, yeah, especially when you're acquirer and the acquiree, I'm sure different systems and, you know, things don't talk to each other. Yep. So just like putting this stuff into motion is, yeah. is not as easy as you think. Yeah. Once you've even sorted out what the accounting should be. Once you get the accounting figured just out, the it's like, oh, you think you're done, but yeah. no, you got to like, now you got to go, maybe you got 10 disparate systems. And sure. You got to figure out how do you want this to work efficiently? And delegation of responsibilities. Who do you want to do what to manage what? Right. What kind of historical data do you want to keep, um, et cetera? So there's a lot that goes into the operational side yeah, of the just house. Integrating that, the businesses mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, and that's just the accounting integration. That's not even yeah, the yeah. other integration. Yeah, you think about just human resources, operations, just in general. Yeah, for sure, a lot there. You know, related to you know purchase accounting and things that you just talked about there. There's clearly one aspect that can't be overlooked, which is the need for fair values, right? It's a component of how you count for businesses under US GAAP is you have to fair value certain, you know, acquired assets and assumed liabilities. Can you talk to me about just what, I guess, what role valuation plays Mm -hmm. here and kind of what, what companies need to kind of keep in mind when they're thinking about you know, valuing these assets or liabilities. Is, before I answer, is there a plug for a Will Carroll valuation <laughs> podcast? Or is that a, to, to, to be continued? Uh, we did do a, a podcast. I'm trying to remember if it was on specific to business comment. It actually may have been. I think you are correct. Okay. All right. right. It's been... It's been a minute, so uh, don't don't quote me on that. Yeah. One. Okay. <laughs> well, to, for a quick refresher, though, as a part of an eight hundred five ASC eight hundred five acquisition, you are required to fair value the acquired assets and assumed liabilities under ASC eight twenty. 
And so with that then comes the need for um, evaluation report, we'll call it, because generally speaking, most companies don't have the in-house expertise to, to do the techniques and modelings that's required. Some do, some companies are so acquisitive that they have just the in-house resources and then the auditors are comfortable with the outputs. But generally speaking, um, companies don't have that in-house resource. And so they sure. go to a third party specialist to actually provide um, what we'll call evaluation report. And it's a lot of schedules and a lot of numbers and a lot of modeling techniques. And um, you know they'll use the word esoteric assumptions and uh, that, you have to essentially do to support how you came up with these derived fair values. Um, and nine times out of 10, it's going to have to go through an auditor and the auditor's valuation team. And so it's extremely complex and there's a lot of key assumptions that can change things significantly to get these derived values. Right. And it takes time for those valuation reports to ultimately to come together, right? The exercise of doing it. So I think a lot of times, planning for that right and just keeping that in mind especially mm -hmm. if you have a late period kind of acquisition that yep. you you make and you know your valuation report may or may not be ready yep for your kind of external financial reporting and just kind of thinking through um how you'll navigate that and utilize kind of the measurement period and stuff yeah i, I will add one thing to be mindful of during the valuation process is to think forward into the future and think through, you know, are you doing a valuation at the consolidated level? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's all you need. You just need the, the consolidated viewpoint of this business, or maybe you need it at a more disaggregated level for some future um, event. Where so if you were it, to carve off a piece of even this acquired business, mm -hmm. you would break it down even further in the future, yeah, exactly. just having some of these things yeah. yeah. A lot of companies will buy knowing that they're going to sell something in the future. Maybe sure. not today, but at some point in time. And, you know, you can save some time and money today by carbon, by doing this segregated evaluation report, knowing that, hey, there's the possibility in the future that you're going to, you're going to sell a portion of this. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about, I think, accounting specifically implications there. Talked a little bit, not just about valuation, but maybe kind of switching gears to the reporting side. You know, how does... What do companies need to be thinking about as far as kind of their new either reporting cadence or obligations? Like, you know, oftentimes, you know, if debt's taken out, there's going to be external financials mm -hmm. that are ne still necessary, audited financials that have to be done. But what other like kind of reporting, I'm going to say not, not always an obligation, but um, requirements are, are on the table. Yeah, expectations. Yeah. yeah. So it, it happens fast and furious usually after the deal is closed. And we just got done talking about the networking capital mm -hmm. as a start and then just even do an operational. Like, um, Especially if you got a private equity owner. Yeah, business company. It's like not only do you have to do those things and then start putting this in your system and getting accounted for, but like immediately starting, you're going to have bank requirements. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's monthly, maybe it's quarterly. Most oftentimes it's going to be monthly. You have to start doing that. So that's a very quick clip uh, for doing reporting. And then you got your private equity, uh, oftentimes private equity owner reporting. Maybe that's even weekly. You got to give them KPIs. Maybe it's monthly. Um, and oftentimes they're looking at things separate from the bank. So that's another deliverable. Then you're going to have your audit. Oftentimes, of you know, now you have your annual audit. And if you're a, a public company, you're going to have quarterly reporting with this new business you acquired. And so you know, you have a lot of reporting requirements that happen very quick. And sure. so it just, again, it's just another distraction of running the business that you're historically used to running. Right. And being prepared for all that mm -hmm. and having the right resources lined up to help support that. 
So let's, we got a good picture of all stuff that happens once you've acquired and kind of the early days type things, but then kind of the natural next step a lot of companies make once they acquire a business, um, especially as they're going forward with integrating is looking at ways they can streamline mm-hmm. the business. And some of that is, you know, a little bit more operational in their decision making. But if a company's looking to quote unquote, streamline their business, like what are they looking to actually achieve here? What does that mean? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. It's a, and it's a big question. And, you know, a lot of times you're gonna hear the word synergies most often times, especially in the, in the, due diligence reports, but they're looking to reduce redundancies, eliminate waste, uh, and, and find ways to take these two businesses, maybe it's, maybe it's more, and find opportunities for unlocking value and growth. So you can unlock value through growth and you can unlock value through reducing excessive costs. And so, you know, during the diligence, they've probably identified how they're gonna start to do that and what's driving the value of this business, what they're really gonna pay for it. And now it's just a matter of, of executing and starting to do step by step, um, you know what are who who is going to get produced? Yeah, what's this new what's this new business going to look like as a whole? Um, and so there's different ways to do it, and different different organizations have different ways of, of doing it. And some will go in and buy and not even cut cut costs, and they're only focused on top line growth. Yeah, they're kind of let so the kind of depends. Yeah, type of business, the deal structure, mm-hmm. the industry, and obviously like what's the acquirers. Yep kind of investment strategic objectives. Yeah. Like what what are they looking to accomplish with this investment they just made? Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned like cost reductions. I, I imagine that's very common. Um, see that pretty often, right? Looking for redundancies and things like that. But what are some other strategies or things you see when companies are looking to streamline that are often used, okay. like other than cost reductions? Yeah, I'll I'll cover some of the ones that I, I like to uh, that I see the most. So we talked about cost reduction. So um, that could be anything from duplicate functions and roles. Yeah. Um, optimizing supply chains that's pretty key. Negotiating vendor contracts um, and centralizing administrative services. So creating shared service centers. Yeah. Which is which is very important. Um, you know, if it's a manufacturing business, consolidation of, fa- of facilities, as simple as that. If you know, if you got excess warehouse capacity uh, or uh, production capacity, you know, use one facility versus two. Yeah, save a lot or of money if the there. acquirer has location somewhere where the existing business mm-hmm. does, you may consolidate and things like yeah. that. And yeah. even up with facilities, you can go things of just analyzing your your leases. Do you want to lease? Do you own your facility? Do you want to do a sale lease back to unlock some additional capital? Um, that's at play. Technology integration. Obviously, now you've got two of essentially the same of every of things. So which ones do you want to keep for the business and where is it going to go to make sure you're thinking about that the right way? Um, product and service rationalization. Um, you know, trying to identify the key products, the primary drivers, the, the high margin products and Maybe it's time to sunset some of the other ones. Um, sales and marketing alignment. So going as a cohesive strategy to the market um, to again grow top line. Yeah. Finance and accounting integration. That's our bread and butter and, and talent reten- um, retention. That's huge too. So there's there's a lot of plus. Hopefully that answers some of the questions. I don't know if you've got anything you'd like to add as well. No, I think that's a pretty exhaustive, <laughs> exhaustive list, but a lot of uh, good examples there. But I know, and I, I can say I imagine, but I know this, 
Um, there are challenges when it comes to streamlining or just integrating, you know, two different businesses or even just having a new ownership, you know, for a kind of a change in control type transaction itself. What are some of those challenges that come up with trying to do this integration streamlining? Mm -hmm. What are some, I feel like this starts to get into more of like the psychology of, of <laughs> the way businesses run as well. But um, can you talk to us a bit about some of the things that you see or, or mm -hmm. you hear companies talk about as some of their struggles? Yeah, I would say the most common one we're probably used to is the cultural integration and, and issues that can, can occur there. Um, you know, you might be at a company and you love it and you loved what they was built around the, the vision, the mission, the people, and then you get bought by somebody that, yeah, especially if you go from like a founder business to now you've got this big kind of corporate yep. over. Yeah. A lot of people don't like that. Yep. And so that cultural integration can cause a lot of problems. And Twitter was probably the most recent high profile example of that, where it's just, it's, it's in the news, it's public and yep. it's just going to be such a cultural clash that can almost distract from what you're trying to accomplish with with the actual acquisition um and it, i would say kind of tied to cultural is also just employee morale and retention which is uh there's a lot that happens in these transactions and and people start to worry about are they going to be a part of the reduction you know what does their future look like are they going to get fired is somebody else going to get brought in to replace them um you know because they're thinking about their lives and their and their and their financial livelihood, but also they're just in the accounting department and the finance, they're very busy. You've got all the pre-close activities, you got to support diligence. Okay. Then the deal closes. Now you got to either do a, a duplicate close. If it's a mid month transaction, then another close, then you got to do networking capital adjustments. Then you got to do reporting and you got to operationalize it. Then you got to get audited. So it's just this nonstop, you know, just under the gun lots of nights and weekends there too right <laughs> yeah yeah so that's that's another thing um that we talked about redundancies and layoffs uh yeah i could it's, it's a long list so but for me it's the cultural and the employee morale that i see the most um yeah and that makes just, sense right yeah people are some of the most important assets to go along with an acquisition right just the institutional knowledge mm -hmm. um and even for the acquirer, like, you know, those folks that really kind of maybe help bring this deal to to a close were a part of that type process. And it doesn't always stop there. Once the deal is closed, there's a lot of work to do after. Yep. For sure. For all, all people involved. Yeah. A few else, maybe a couple others, organizational structure challenges, you know, who's actually in charge, who do I report to, when are decisions being made? Do I listen to that person's decision? Um, you get a lot of that. Yeah, change management is huge, right? Yeah. Just having someone that can help facilitate a lot of this stuff is is important and having consistent messaging. Yeah. And then you're going to have technology issues too of, okay, you're going to go from two of everything to one. Along the way, there's going to be very, you know, huge challenges of data migrations and, you know, cutoffs of, of information and learning new systems and techniques. And uh, a lot can go wrong with data um, that we see. Yeah. Okay. So, once a company is acquired, now they've streamlined and integrated. We've kind of covered those aspects of a, of the business. I think it's fair to say that everyone's then looking to grow mm -hmm. <laughs> that that business itself or their investment in this business. Um, so, what are what are common ways that companies you know, try to establish this growth with their with the acquired business? What are, what are things you see? What are strategies that are often used to help accelerate that growth? Um, what can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, and there's no writing. What yeah, writing? Like, there's, there's so many there's ways. So many companies ways. grow and so many strategies. So obviously, and a lot of like industry specific too. Sure. Um, you know, you got like life sciences where they do M and A to then they just ex- keep doing massive investments in R and D to hopefully grow and unlock a new product. To then that'll um, you know drive tons of growth or enter into JVs um, and the like. But um, you know what I kind of see is as the main thesis for M and A to help grow. It's kind of getting back to a few a few items. It's like why are you doing this? And and really, it's you know you go and buy something um, because it's just quicker to to acquire it. Let's say it's a product or a service than to actually develop it internally yourself. And so once you kind of got that mass, you can buy it and then you can kind of put it through your marketing channels and that can help grow it. Um, you buy something to enter new locations that you know might have been too daunting for yourself to also implement into yourself. So whether that's going abroad, you can buy a, an established business abroad, and then again hit up your marketing channels and your partner and customer channels and grow that way. Um, you, know, you buy for new access to customers, um, and also taking a competitor out of play, I say, is is really important. It's, mm-hmm. You can grow by just dominating market share. You know, if somebody was a new up and coming was going along and then you bought it and take it out of play and now you're the only one left. Well, that's another way to, to, to grow because you can only buy from you. Tax benefits is another way to, you know, it's an odd way to grow, but you, you can grow that way. Sure. And so, but holistically getting back to it, it's, you know, I kind of view it as four ways of just simple growth and it's, you're gonna invest in the product service that drives the revenue. So I'll just call that R and D. You're gonna invest in the people, the processes or the systems. And so I'd say those are the ways that I view of like, you're buying, you're gonna invest those M&A dollars. Those sellers are mm-hmm. are the ones that you put the, yeah. yeah. Okay. So hopefully that answers your question. It I does. Know it kind of roundabout. I know, I know it's a tough question to answer too, because there's obviously a number of strategies that can be Yeah, deployed. it's a very theoretical so, question too. It's always a, a thought provoking one to end it on. And I think that's what we'll do today. So definitely appreciate you. Uh, you know, sharing your insights, joining me today. I know we just kind of scratched the surface on some of these things because there's a lot we could have easily gotten into much, much more in depth, but uh, definitely appreciate your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, of course. And for those that have been following our transaction lifecycle series, we will conclude with the third installment where we explore saying goodbye and looking at all things divestiture related. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, In the meantime, for Embark, I want to thank our listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. We'll see you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.